Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you all. Um, we're looking at Ephesians 2, which is not necessarily a, a Christmas sermon, but I think, uh, just as Pastor Kevin mentioned, um, ultimately the reason for the season is Jesus Christ, right? And um, God gave his only son uh, to do a work here, not only to become a baby, infant, lowly, but also to grow up and to accomplish the work of the gospel for us. So that's what we're thinking about this morning as we consider Ephesians 2. But before we do that, I would like to briefly pray. So let's pray together. Dear Lord, Father, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself. Father, you have revealed yourself in your word. Lord, thank you that even in this season we we remember, Lord, that you have revealed yourself in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, and we thank you that we have the word that speaks even today and is alive and active. And Lord, thank you that we can open it and that we can hear your voice even this morning speaking to us. And Father, we pray that for those who are here who have already been made alive by the gospel, that we would be built up, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be brought to worship. And Father, for those who are here who do not know that gospel message yet, who have not been brought to life yet, we pray, Lord, would you make dead sinners alive, even this morning, even here. And Lord, we pray as we open your word that you would show us wonderful things out of your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, in the Netherlands, there were elections. And I don't know how it is with you, but whenever there are elections, I'm reminded by the politicians of all the problems that there are in the country. I think you guys are coming up to another election next year. I mean, politicians tell us everything that's wrong in the country. And, you know, that's what politicians do. That's what they're there for. They're there for to solve and maybe cause problems. But I wonder, when we think about the politicians and, and all the problems that they point out, what do you think is humanity's greatest problem? Maybe not only in the U.S., but really just the humanity in general. What is our greatest problem? Well, what does modern man do to get answers to a question like that? You ask ChatGPT. So that's what I did. I asked ChatGPT, what is humanity's greatest problem? Well, ChatGPT gave me 10 greatest problems. So I'll give you some. There was also some some organizations that kind of spearhead these problems. So I'll give you a couple. The IPCC, the International Panel Climate Change, you've maybe heard of them. They see climate change as the greatest problem. According to them, we're almost drowning. So that's the greatest problem for humanity. Um, The World Equality Database and Oxfam, they see inequality, both economic and social inequality, as the greatest problem of humanity, causing suffering everywhere. The WHO, the World Health Organization, we've had some experience with them. Um, They feature multiple times in the greatest problems of humanity, interestingly. Um, The mental health crisis, um, pandemics like COVID, 
and just really any other public health crisis, according to them, is the greatest problem of humanity. The Pew Research Center sees political polarization as the greatest problem. The Electronic Frontier Foundation um, is worried about technological dependence and privacy. And Human Rights Watch just looks at the entire climate of morality and sees a collapse of morality as the greatest problem of humanity. Now, ChatGPT tells us that kind of depending on your background and your personal priorities, one of these will be what you think will be the greatest problem of humanity. So I wonder, what do you think? Because it's interesting to notice that the answer of the one who made humanity is not in the list. One way or another, the one who created us did not get to give an answer to that question in this list. God himself is not in the list. So, what does God think is the greatest problem of humanity? Is it inequality? Climate change? Mental health crisis? The collapse of morality? According to God, according to the scriptures, the greatest problem of humanity is that we are dead. Yes, we're walking around, but we're dead on the inside. We are walking dead. And this problem is the problem that Paul is addressing in Ephesians 2. Look with me in Ephesians 2, verse 1, where Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Yes, we are dead in sins, but we're also walking. We're the walking dead. And that will be our first consideration this morning. Verse 1 to 3, the walking dead. Like I said, we walk around, but everything we do shows that we are dead. So how did this happen to us? Well, verse 1 tells us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We know here as, as Christians going all the way back to Genesis, that God created the world good and that he created humanity as the crown of creation. And Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden there to enjoy God's presence and to be blessed by God. And they were allowed to eat of any tree in the garden except one. There was one rule, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, Humanity was summoned to trust God, to trust God to define God and evil, good and evil, and not themselves. But as we know, instead of trusting God, Adam and Eve chose to define good and evil for themselves. And they listened to the voice of the serpent, the devil, and they ate. Even though God did not kill them right on the spot, they were sent out of the garden, out of the life-giving presence of God himself, only to await their mortal bodies to follow their spiritual status of death. And as we then look at Genesis 5, it's only natural that when we see this first genealogy of humanity, that there's a refrain there that says, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death entered creation because of sin. 
That is exactly what Paul is saying here. And when you then look at Genesis 6, Genesis 6 describes the status, the, the, the place where humanity is at in Genesis 6. And it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you don't believe that humanity is dead, look at the way they live. Paul here is saying, you know, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's like, yes, we, we, we died because of sin, and then we're continuing to walk in sin, which shows that we are dead. You want to know whether humanity is dead? Look at the way they live. They are walking dead. Walking in the Bible is a, is a metaphor for the way of life. It's kind of the way that you walk around on earth. And Paul is saying, if you don't believe that humanity is dead, just look at the way they live. So what does it look like? Well, look with me in verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. Walking dead, live in a way that's following the course of the world. It is living like the world. It is approving whatever the world approves. Liking whatever the world likes. Never opposing what the world is putting in front of you. It's just doing what everyone else does. And this is by nature who we are and what we do. But there's more to it. Look at the second half of verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What does this mean? Well, walking dead, walk in accordance with the will of the, the prince of the power of the air. Well, who is the prince of the power of the air? That's Satan. So the walking dead, they live in accordance with the will of Satan. They follow Satan, that ancient serpent, the devil. And just like God works in his children through his spirit, so Satan is working in his followers with a spirit. It's doing what Satan does. It's doing his will, rebelling against God. It's following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve and following the serpent. That's what it looks like to walk around and be dead. But look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. If you were tempted to think. That we are just victims of a demonic oppressor. Who makes us sin. Because we're, you know, there's a spirit of, of the prince of the power in the air. That's working in us. Well, you're wrong. You can't blame Satan for your sin. We sin willingly. Paul is alluding here to Genesis 6, that the thoughts of humanity were evil only continually. We as human beings are not forced to sin. We love to sin. We choose to sin. We want to walk away from God and His commandments. It's our desires and our passions and our lusts that lead us to it. And we joyfully follow them. And then in the second half of verse 3, we read it. We read what is the destination 
of the walking dead. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our destination is wrath. The wrath of God. God is good. And because he's good, he has to punish evil. The problem with us is, you know, we can easily see the evil outside of us. But that same evil is inside of us. And if God is truly good, he must not only punish the evil outside of us, but also the evil in us. And so the destination of evil mankind is God's wrath. Sons of disobedience become children of wrath. Humanity's biggest problem is that we are walking dead. Dr. Wilsey, a professor at the Southern Seminary where I was uh, privileged to study, uh, once in a while takes some students with him on night hikes. So with a map and compass, we just go into the woods and walk around there during the night. I, I went on one of those and... Um, one time we came to an interesting place. In the middle of the woods, there was a um, kind of opening in the woods. And through the dim light of the stars and the moon, we could see tombstones. It was an old abandoned graveyard. And Dr. Wilsey said, this is a great memento mori. Some of you might know memento mori is a Latin phrase that means something like, remember that you must die. And then Dr. Wilsey told a story. A story about a villager in an old medieval town. You know, in the Middle Ages, the birth rates and the death rates were a lot higher. And this villager was complaining with the pastor of the church that the bells were ringing so often for every person that died. He said, you know, on Sunday, I get it. You're calling us to come to church. But with all those dead people, they can't even hear you. But oh, said the pastor, Those bells are not ringing for the dead. They are ringing for the living to remind them that they also one day must die. One way or another, the biggest problem of humanity does not feature in the list that ChatGPT gives you when you ask it, what's the biggest problem of humanity? There's all kinds of problems there. Problems that we made up, maybe. Problems that are really there. But ultimately, it's, it's symptom control when we try to fight those problems. Or maybe even placebo. Our biggest problem is that we're dead. Is there a solution? Is there hope for humanity? Well, the whole point of being dead is that there is no hope. The only hope of a dead person is that they come to life. And I don't know how it is with you, but dead people don't come to life. And yet, in this passage, that's exactly what is going to happen. If you look at the last verse of this passage, you see the word walking show up again. And this time it's talking about people who've been made alive, who are walking in good works. One way or another, the walking dead become living walking. How does that happen? Well, Look at verse 4. But God. What stands between death and life? What stands between walking dead and the living walking? It's God who starts to do something. It is God who 
works, but God. And that brings us to our second consideration, the work of God, verses 4 to 9. The work of God. Read with me in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God made us alive. Literally, he co-made us alive with Christ. When, when Christ was made alive, we were made alive with him. Paul, he makes up a, a word in the Greek, so I'm doing the same thing in English. Co-made us alive. He made us alive together with Jesus. When? Well, when we were still dead, that's what it says. When we were still dead, we were made alive with Christ. And why? Why would God do that? Because of his character. Because of who he is. You see that in verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul here is alluding to Exodus 34. Remember when God reveals himself to Moses and he proclaims his name before him? God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God made us alive because of who he is. You know, in Dutch we have the saying that we were no hair better than the rest. We were not at all better than anyone else. At the end of verse 3, we were reminded that we were like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. We were no better. But God made us alive because of who he is, not because of who we are. We are saved because of who, uh, we are because of what, we're saved because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. I mean, we were dead, says Paul. We were, we were buried in the grave. But what does the Bible say? Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. We were made alive because of who God is, because of his character. This is why Paul says, by grace you have been saved. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. What can a dead person merit? They're dead. By grace you have been saved. And Paul even repeats this in verse 8. You skip over to verse 8, he says it again. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, this this passage is beautifully structured. Paul has intentionally put words on either side to create a structure of, you could say, an A, B, C, B, A structure. Kind of like a podium with, with different steps. And so he started with walking, remember? Walking dead. And then he ends with the living walking. That word walking is repeated. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Everything is God's work. From beginning to end, everything is God's work. It's a gift. There's nothing to boast. It's not because of our work, says Paul. We cannot boast. Even even the faith. Did you see that? Even the faith that is the means by which we 
take hold of the gospel is a gift, says Paul. (laughs) We were dead. We couldn't earn any of it. If the structure starts with walking and ends with walking, and then speaks of but God and by grace you have been saved, and then speaks of but grace you have been saved, a gift of God, those words stands across from one another, what stands at the center? Because Paul has structured it in such a way that he wants to draw our attention to the middle, to what is said right in the middle. Well, verses 6 and 7 are in the middle. What is in the middle of this passage? Or better, who is in the middle of this passage? Look with me in verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is at the center. At the center of God's work. From bringing us from from dead to life. From walking dead to the living walking is the work of God centered on Jesus Christ. So far in Ephesians, um, if you might know, in in chapter 1, Paul talks about the spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ Jesus when we become believers. He outlines all the amazing things that God does for us in the gospel. And that text, too, is structured like our text today. And at the center of that text stands verse 10, which says, That God's plan was to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Christ stands at the center. And then the second passage in in chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, is also structured in this way and also has a central point, which is 120, which says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So again, it focuses in on Christ. Christ stands at the center. You might have noticed... When I just read that text, that in chapter 1, verse 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, it's talking about the great power with which God raised Christ from the dead. I'll read it again. Chapter 1, verse 20. The power of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the central point of that passage there. You go to our text, what is the central point of our passage? That God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, you could translate this as co-raised us and co-seated us. Everything that happened to Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated on high has now happened to us. We were co-raised with Christ and co-seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You could say... In the gospel, we have been united to Christ. We have become one with Christ. We are in union with the risen Lord Jesus. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. That When we came to faith, what is true of Jesus became true of us. When he took our sin upon himself and died for our sins and was raised to life, we were raised with him. And we were seated with him in the heavenly places. A beautiful illustration of this is baptism, right? That's what we celebrate when someone is baptized. That they're united to Christ. They're going, symbolically going down into the grave with Jesus under the waters and then are raised to new life coming out of the waters. 
It depicts the union that we have as believers with Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you do not believe this message yet, then hear this news. Because I know that maybe maybe you don't recognize that there's death inside of you, but you do recognize that there's death outside of you. You do recognize that there's all kinds of problems with humanity, and the biggest one is that you also have to face death. And the Bible explains to us where that came from. The reason that death entered the world is because of the wickedness of humanity, because of the evil of humanity. And if you're honest and you look at your own heart, you have to acknowledge that that evil outside of us is also inside of you. But there's good news. That's what the Christmas season is about, that God the Father sent His Son to live the life that you should have lived, but didn't live. And then to die the death that you deserved because of your sin in your place. If you would only repent from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. So hear this this morning. If you you see the wickedness and the death outside of you, look inside and acknowledge that you too need to be saved. If you want to know what that means to follow Jesus, please talk to one of the pastors here, or talk to me after the service, or really anyone you've come with. I'm, I'm sure they're glad to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, we need to fix our eyes on Christ, who is seated in the heavenly places. We are united with Him. What's true of Him is true of us. But we must also fix our eyes on the future. Because there's another text in the center of our verse. Verse 7. Sorry, in the center of our text. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is going to show off. God is going to show off his grace over us forever. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. God is going to eternally show off his grace and his mercy and his kindness over you forever. We will share in the glory of Christ. You know, if the Bible didn't say it that way, it would sound blasphemous. But listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.14. To this he called you through the gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are united by faith with the risen Lord Christ, we will share in His glory forever. When? In the coming ages, says Paul. The word ages here is the same word that he used earlier that was translated in in the ESV at least with the course of this world. You could say the age of this world. Paul is saying, you know, the age of this world is painful. It's sinful. It's dead. It's marked by the fall. But in the coming ages, God is going to show off His grace. It's going to be amazing. You're going to share in the glory of Christ. That's what's coming. So fix your eyes on the future, on the reward, on what is still coming. I want to just briefly... Go to 2 Corinthians with you. 
Just ponder this point a little further. Second Corinthians. When we think about this world, because I know there's many here that even this past week have been confronted by problems. Problems, old problems, new problems, suffering, pain, hurt. And this text today has something to say to that. I think Paul beautifully describes it in in 2 Corinthians 4. What it means to look forward to that future of glory united with the risen Lord Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It might sound offensive to hear Paul say, This light, momentary affliction. I don't know how it is with you, but it doesn't feel like that. That it's only light and only momentary. The afflictions that we go through in life. But Paul is saying, compared to the eternal weight of glory that is awaiting, it's just light. It's just momentary. There's an amazing glory awaiting for you. And even your affliction today makes it so that that glory will only be greater. Paul says, fix your eyes on the future, on the things unseen, but true. Christ is seated in the heavenly places right now, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And he will be revealed with all his glory, and we will share in that glory forever. And God is going to show off his grace forever over you, Christian. So rejoice and be glad. That brings us to our third and last consideration. Because God is not only going to show off for eternity in the the age to come. He's also going to show off today. Now. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, we have been co-raised with Christ now. We've been made alive with Christ now. And God wants us to walk in newness of life now, to show off what He has done in us. And so, our third consideration is the living walking. The living walking Verse 10. So, at the end of chapter 1, we haven't read that, but at the end of chapter 1, it speaks of how when Christ was raised and seated in the heavenly places, all things were put under his feet. Everything was put under his feet. Well, that's an allusion to Psalm 8, where it talks about how in the beginning God created Adam and put everything under Adam's feet. But Adam sinned and he fell from glory. But Jesus, as the new Adam, dying and raised to new life, seated in the heavenly places, 
has been reinstalled as the, as, the, as the king over the universe. And everything is put under his feet. He's like a new Adam, and a new creation. And when we are raised with him, we too become new creations. We get to share in the new humanity. And Paul is talking about that here in verse 10. You know, we are his workmanship. You could translate that with, we are his creation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's a goal to it. God not only raised us to to life to, to show off forever his grace and his mercy, but also to show off in this life. That we have come to life and are now walking in a way that is no longer following Adam's footsteps, but Christ's footsteps. No longer walking like Adam, but walking like Christ. We have to understand that we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. You know what is true of the dead is true of the living. The proof is in the walking. We looked at the, 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 the walking dead earlier and the, and the things that marked them. And if you look at their life, you know they're dead. Well, the same is true of the living. When you look at their life, you can see they're alive. Because of the good works that they do. Because they have made a life, been made alive in Christ. And they're followers of Jesus Christ. The dead status of the walking dead is shown in the way they live. But the status of being alive is also shown in the way that we live. At the same time, this passage is entirely passive. I don't know if you've seen that. Everything is God's work. Even these good works that we're supposed to walk in are planned by God beforehand. Did you see that? God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. Everything is God's work. Even the good works in our life. God made us alive and God planned these good works. Everything is God's work. And so to him be all the glory. This is what it means that Ephesians 1.23 says that God fills all in all. It is ultimately only God who deserves all glory. And yet, a passage like this does have an implicit command to it. My, my homiletics professor would use this illustration. He said, you know, when your wife tells you the trash is full... You better don't say, oh, that's just a passive thing. It's just a passive description of the trash. I don't have to do anything. No, she means you to take the trash out. If you take that as a passive description, you're going to sleep in the doghouse tonight. The trash is full is an implicit command. And so it's also with Paul. And I think that's, that's actually proved by the way that Paul has structured the entire uh, letter to the Ephesians. I mentioned earlier how this text is kind of like, a, like an A, B, C, B, A structure, or like a, like a podium where matching elements um, are seen on either side. And you can understand the message better by, by looking at um, these texts in light of one another. Well, Paul does the same thing on a greater scale in Ephesians. So elements from the first half of Ephesians stand across from elements from the second half of Ephesians. And if you know Ephesians a little bit, in the first three chapters, it's all gospel. 
Everything is passive. Everything is a gift from God, all glory to God. We don't do anything. We were just dead and made alive, and we were seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We receive all the spiritual blessings. It's all grace. But then in the second half of Ephesians, Paul starts applying the truths of the gospel. What does this mean for our lives? And Paul has structured it in such a way that the elements of the gospel in the first half are specifically matching applications on the other side. So I just want to flip with you to Ephesians 4. You remember how our text starts with walking and ends with walking, walking dead and then the walking living. Well, look in chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then he continues to describe the walking dead, essentially. And then in verse 22, he commands them to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see that? He's saying to put off the old self, because we have been made alive with Christ, and to put on the new self, because we have been made alive with Christ. And that new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You could say, It is created in the image of God. We are a new humanity. Created in the image of God. Who is the image of God ultimately? Jesus Christ. When we were raised from the dead and seated on high with Jesus Christ, we were restored as image bearers. And Paul is saying, now live like it. Live like a new humanity. Live like a humanity that is made alive in Christ. And then really the rest of chapter 4 and 5 is repeating this word walking, walking, walking over and over and over again. It's the theme of those, those texts and it's, it's applying the truth that we have been made alive with Christ and united with him. You know, it's saying, don't do these things. And instead of doing these things, do those things. So Paul himself in Ephesians is applying it this way. What's my point? Well, like I said, this text, Ephesians 2.10, does give us an implicit command. This is exactly the way that Paul himself applies this truth. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. And Ephesians 2.1-10 should encourage us to walk in newness of life. We have been made alive with Christ. We have been enabled to obey. Formerly, we were dead. Spiritually speaking, we weren't able to obey. We weren't able to do good works. But we have been made alive. It's happened to us if we trust in Christ by faith. And now we're alive. And so we should walk in a manner that shows that off. We've been enabled to obey now. So what does this look like? How do we apply a passage like this? Well, I think firstly, it, it applies like not living like the world. We have seen how the walking dead followed the course of this world. We are called to not live like the world. You could think of that school or, or at work when people 
talk behind the back of others. Or they, they use crude speech or, or, or they're complaining about life. You know, a person who's made alive with Christ doesn't do that. And they might even say something about it when other people do. But not only do we, do we put those works off, we also put good works on. We're new humanity. So instead, we should use speech that builds up. Talk highly of other people when they're not present. Express gratefulness for the good things that the Lord has given you in your life instead of complaining. Walk in good works because you are God's work. We can also apply it by not following the devil any longer. We saw how the walking dead, they they follow the prince of the power of the air. They do his will. Well, you might not say during the week, well, I'm going to follow Satan today. But it's very easy for us human beings to do that. What does it look like? Well, it looks like rebelling against God's commandments. It, it looks like believing, I know better than God. Even though God has warned me about these things, and even though God has said that I shouldn't do those things, I think I know better. I think I can deal with that in a little bit better way than, than God is telling me to. We should put that off. We should trust God. And we should take sin seriously. So instead of thinking that you know better than God, fight sins in your life. And I know all of us have certain sins in our life that we are just prone to lose at over and over again. And that's when we are tempted to trust Satan, to follow Satan, and to continue in rebellion against God. Because that's what it is. When we give in to sin... We are rebelling against God. And I know it's hard. But we have been made alive. We have been enabled to kill those sins. So wage war on your sin. Talk to people around you, maybe here at church, that you can keep each other accountable. And fight the good fight. Take sin seriously. Fight it. Walk in good works. Because you are God's work. And lastly... It looks like not obeying your passions. And we talked about how the walking dead, they they just follow their desires and their lusts. They willingly follow them. You know, we shouldn't say after we sin, oh, that's just who I am. That's just, you know, my, my dad had that. That's just who we are. That's what we do. No. That's that's your mortal flesh. That is That is your lust. That is your desire speaking. And the Bible says, well, That's dead walking. You have been made alive. So wage war on that too. Train yourself in self-control. And do it together as a church. Hold one another accountable. Confess your sins to people in the church. Take this war seriously. You have been made alive with Christ. Walk in good works because you are God's work. Show off for God. Not only in the coming ages when He's going to show off on you, and you show off for God now because He made you alive. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, when we were still walking dead, living in sin, God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with him. 
So let us, while we anticipate the immeasurable riches of His grace in the coming ages, shine with our lights now so that people may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for who you are in Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for your mercy and your kindness. Father, we praise you that you, because of who you are, have made us alive with Christ and have seated us with him in the heavenly places. And Father, help us to fix our eyes on Christ, who is seated in glory. Lord, and help us to to fix our eyes on the future when we will eternally be with you and share in the glory of Christ. Lord, and I pray for those who are here who do not know that great gospel yet, who do not have that hope yet. Father, would you use this gospel this morning to make dead sinners alive? Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.